Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would give us ears to hear, and an open heart and will to hear what you have to say to the church. God, speak to us each individually through your word and by your spirit, that we may be uh, challenged and convicted and transformed into the image of Jesus, who loved his enemies to the fullest by dying in our place on the cross. And so it's for his glory, and in his name we ask. Amen. Please be seated. One of my favorite shows, I've mentioned it before, is The Office. I've watched it, I don't even, so many times I can't even count anymore. One of my favorite bits on The Office is when Dwight, who's the sort of uh, Battlestar Galactica watching, Dungeons and Dragon playing, know-it-all troublemaker in The Office, um, he comes back to The Office saying that he has been treated so unfairly and so uh, partially by the store in the mall. And so now he's calling everyone's clients in the mall and canceling all of their business. And the re- uh, long story short, it, we get a clip of the original time when Dwight actually went to the store. And we see him, he's a beet farmer. We see him covered in red beet juice, like in a wife beater, up against the window like this. He looks like a madman. So of course the store locked the door and didn't let him in because he looked like an insane person. But he took it as a personal slight and then began to be vindictive toward everybody else. That's immediately what I thought of when I, when I read about partiality. Uh, the partiality that we, you know, sometimes we are treated in a certain way and it so deeply offends us, right, that we've been treated that way. And yet Jesus commands us not to just think about how we feel in that situation, but how others feel in that situation and how our actions impact them, how we are being perhaps um, partial towards one person or, or one group of people or another, how we're showing favoritism um, or, or slighting a, a, a specific group of people. This passage, uh, this church that James is writing to is dealing with that, right? You see that in verses two and three. They're, they're struggling with, uh, he's giving them a hypothetical example that's probably a real world example for them, that they're treating the rich one way and the poor another way. And James wants to write and, and challenge them on that and call them to love your neighbor as yourself, or as Jesus puts it there in the gospel reading, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so James tells this church two things in this passage. One, that showing partiality denies the gospel. And two, that showing partiality transgresses or contradicts or uh, breaks the royal law of Christ. It, uh, showing partiality denies the gospel and transgresses the law. So let's look at this together. You can see it, it uh, partiality denies the gospel. That's basically verses one through seven. It begins verse one uh, saying, my brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. One commentator put, the, put it this way. He said, my brothers, you should not try to combine the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ with showing partiality or favoritism. These are two things. They're diametrically opposed to one another. They cannot be combined. You cannot claim Jesus as your Lord, and then turn around and treat people. You treat people that look like you or that you want to look like well, and you treat people that you don't want to look like or that don't look like you um, poorly. That's not going to work. They cannot be combined. It's interesting, this word partiality it literally means uh, to regard the face of someone, and it's a, it's a Christian word. It's a word that Christians made up as a way of describing the way that Christians should treat all people, that we should not look at the rich one way, or look at somebody who's our same ethnicity, or our same social uh, status, or our same 
background uh, from the same hometown. Whatever it might be, we shouldn't look at anyone with favor over another person, but that we should show impartiality in all our actions, in all of our deeds. They can't, these things cannot be combined. Why can't they be combined? Well, because the gospel, if you remember, is the offer of free grace to all, forgiveness to all, right? Paul is at pains in his letters to, to drive this point home. doesn't matter if you're Scythian or Roman or Jewish, God offers you grace. doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, God offers you grace. doesn't matter if you're slave or free, God offers you grace. doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, God offers you grace. And so treating someone with partiality, either favoring a person or treating them poorly based on their, their external appearance, that's what partiality means, to, to treat someone differently because of their appearance, social status, race, the way they talk, whatever it might be, the way they dress, uh, that directly contra- contradicts and denies the gospel. The gospel is also the message that Jesus, though he was rich for our sake, became poor that we might become rich, right? In eternity past, enjoying the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he descended to our place, condescended to our place, took on flesh, became a servant, died on a cross, suffered and was humiliated, became the lowest of the low, low, the poorest of the poor, so to speak, in order to raise us up to new life. And so we cannot show partiality because Jesus has extended such grace to us. And it calls him the Lord of glory. We're reminded at the end of the book of James, he talks about Jesus's return, that Jesus is going to come back and judge. He's going to come in glory one day. And do we really, when Jesus comes in his glory, want to put forward earthly riches or earthly status or earthly anything in comparison to his glory? For all those reasons, we see that partiality denies the gospel, just in verse one. Then he goes on uh, in verse four, He says partiality denies the gospel because it also introduces distinctions or divisions in the church. Again, remember what Paul has taught us about the gospel, that in Christ, God is making one new humanity, one new body for Jesus. Not not a a rich body and a poor body, not a male body and a female body, not a black and a white body, no, no matter whatever distinctions you can come up with, but one new body. The Jews and the Gentiles have been all reconciled to one God in Jesus Christ. And so to verse 4, he says to do this introduces divisions into the church. It breaks the unity that God so desires and loves and that Jesus Christ died for. You're right. Remember the famous story where uh, Paul and Peter were both in Galatia. And some men from Judea, so Jewish men, came up to Galatia in modern-day Turkey and when they arrived, Peter became, he, he sort of attached himself to that group, and he began to only eat with that group and only fellowship with that group, and he kind of was ignoring the, the Galatian people, the Gentiles that were there. And Paul says, I opposed him to his face because his actions were not in keeping. They were not in step with the gospel. To create this two-tiered Christianity or this multi-tiered Christianity where Rich people are here, but poor people are down here, and men are here, and women are here, or whatever the distinctions you're going to make, whatever the distinctions that your culture kind of sends you messages about, this passage in James chapter 2 says, no, there is no two-tiered or ten-tiered or twenty-tiered Christianity. There is one body in Jesus Christ. Partiality breaks the unity of the church by introducing divisions. 
And then finally, in this first uh, seven verses, partiality looks at people from the world's perspective instead of God's perspective. Looks at people from the world's perspective and God, instead of God's perspective. God's perspective is given in verse five. It says, God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom for those who love him. Those who love him are made heirs of the kingdom. God, when God looks out into the world, he's not impressed by bank accounts or ethnicity or any other social status or any of that kind of stuff. God is not impressed by any of that. He's no respecter of persons. When God looks out into the world, you know what he sees? He sees a bunch of fallen human beings, tragically made in his image, but now trapped in their sin. And he extends grace to each and every one of us, regardless of our background or our status or uh, bank account or any other thing. God extends. God has chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs. Now, the point's not to exclude the rich, but the point is that rich people, and, and we actually fall into that category, believe it or not, every single one of us here, by comparison to James's first readers, are beyond anything they can imagine in terms of riches. The point is not to exclude rich people, but the point is that we who have our resources met and have our needs met and have the, the resources and the connections to deal with our problems, often feel very self-sufficient and do not feel our spiritual need. It's so easy for us to handle our lives or so easy for us to distract ourselves by frivolities from our lives and from what's really going on that poor people don't have this, these luxuries. And they are often more deeply aware of their need for Christ and God's grace toward them in Christ. So partiality looks at people it looks at people through worldly categories, and God doesn't look at people like that. God extends grace to all. He has chosen, in fact, he's honored the ones that, that the culture would say shouldn't be honored. He has lifted up the poor. And it may be that James's uh, first readers are actually doing this. They're actually treating the rich this way because they're hoping that the rich will sort of, um, you know, quid pro quo. If we treat the rich well, then maybe they'll They'll have our back. You know, if we get dragged into court, we don't have the resources to get the court to find in our favor to protect us from persecution. But maybe if we can buddy up to some of these rich people, they, they'll do that for us. But James reminds them, it's the very, it, these are the very people that are dragging you into court. Don't sell your soul to try and make a friend when that person has no intention of being your friend. Don't honor someone who dishonors the name of Christ. I mean, the, and the um, application I immediately thought of this for us is, is our, sometimes our political candidates. When, when someone promises to do something that we want to be done, we almost give them carte blanche to do anything else, right? We do that whole lesser of two evils, and then we vote, and then we say, I don't even have to hold that, try to hold that person accountable. But I think this passage says, no, yeah, vote however you're going to vote, and then hold that person to, to account for all of the things that they're doing in their campaign and in their personal life and all of this. Don't, don't hitch your wagon to somebody who dishonors the name of Christ to get something out of them. That's a form of partiality, James is saying. There is partiality and prejudice in all of our lives. I think if we're honest, that we all have a category of person or a, per a, a, a person who dresses a certain way or speaks a certain way or who looks a certain way that we will treat poorly or, we, or maybe we won't treat them poorly, but in our heart we kind of want to. We just don't want to get in trouble for it. <laughs> or we'll treat them better because we think they can hook us up 
and get us into a better uh, place in, so in society. So it could be how they dress, it could be their background, it could be the way that they look, it could be how they talk. It could, we all have that. You know, it's natural for us to do that. And by natural, I don't mean good. I just mean it comes naturally to our flesh. Luther said, you can't stop a bird from landing on your head, but you can stop it from making a nest, right? That instinct, those things are going to pop into your mind based on what you were taught as a kid, what you witnessed as a kid, your own experiences in life. You're going to respond to certain people certain ways, right? But you don't have to follow that, that natural sinful instinct. Our calling is to resist that and to extend kindness and mercy and grace and compassion to all, to love our neighbor as ourself. And the good news of the gospel is we don't have to be, you don't have to be ashamed of that and then hide that. Because so often when these kinds of things are pointed out to us, when things like racial inequality are pointed out to us, our instinct is to hide and, and, and be ashamed. But in the gospel, we don't have to be we don't have to do that. We can say, yeah, I'm probably part and parcel of that. There are, there are thoughts in my mind. There are ways that I think about people or, or sometimes even act toward people that are ungodly, that don't match the gospel. But God offers me forgiveness. God offers me his Holy Spirit to change me. God offers me his word to convict me. And so there's no, you don't have to hide. You know, when you have fallen short, you simply admit it and ask for God's grace so that you could stand up and walk and go and sin no more. The, the gospel actually gives us a firm place to stand where we don't have to be ashamed of the fact that we are all partial. And all of us are prejudiced at some level about what we all have our own proclivities, the own, our own prejudices. But the gospel gives us a firm place to stand and to admit that and to be healed by God's grace. And it gives us the only power that, that's going to make any significant difference in the world. The gospel is the only power that's going to bring Anything resembling equality, anything resembling peace, it's only the gospel that's the source of these things. So partiality denies the gospel, and we are called to act in accordance with the gospel and to rest in the grace of God offered to us in the gospel as we seek to love our neighbor. So that's the first seven verses. Partiality violates or denies the gospel. And then verses 8 through 13. James also says partiality violates the royal law. So his description, the royal law, is a way of saying the scripture as summed up in Jesus in his life and death and resurrection and teaching. It's what we say when we say the summary of the law, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. These two, in these two commandments is the, is the whole law. The royal law is that law of love, to love God and to love our neighbor. Or as we read in the gospel reading in Luke chapter 6, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That we are supposed to live like God does. He extends kindness to, to rebels and evil and wicked people and, and grace towards sinners. And we are supposed to act in the same way, love your neighbor as yourself. And isn't that, isn't that summary so genius? Last night, my 8-year-old and my 14-year-old were having a fight at the dinner table. It was a silly thing. It was about who was slicing the pizza, okay? And my 14-year-old was slicing my 8-year-old's pizza, and my 8-year-old was put out by it. And I said, Daniel, I didn't, I didn't ask him permission, permission to tell the story. I should have. Uh, I said, Daniel, if that was your pizza and she was taking it from you and touching it with her hands and cutting it, would, would that be what you would want her to do? No. 
then do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Like it's, and it's such a silly sort of, they're going to forget other than the fact that I made it a sermon illustration, they're going to forget that it ever happened, right? That's the genius of the law. In that situation, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love your neighbor. It applies in that silly little situation between two kids at the dinner table. But it also applies at the highest levels of our life in the most important decisions. God wants us to prioritize love and how we treat people, regardless of what they look like, how they speak, how they dress, their social status, or anything else. God calls us to love our neighbor. And he said, James says in verse 9 that if you, if you um, show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. Just so it's clear. It's not just that the partiality denies the gospel. It's that when we choose to act in a way that's partial towards one person or the other, when we show favor or displeasure based on external things, we are actually sinning against God and breaking the law, transgressing the law. And he says, uh, the law is a whole. You know, the, the, if you say, well, yes, I murdered, but I didn't commit adultery, and so I've kept the command to not commit adultery. He says, no, it all hangs together because it all is summarized as love your neighbor. If you've broken the, the command, love your neighbor in any way, even by what seats you give them in worship on a Sunday, then you have broken the whole law, and you are you're, you're, you should be convicted by that, that you have transgressed the law. The whole law, it, it's, the law could be summarized in that one way of, of into basically one commandment to love because it, the whole law comes from the one God, right? It all reflects his righteousness, his perfect will for human beings. And so whenever we break one of his commands, we stand, in a sense, in opposition to God. We have rejected him, when we've rejected one of his commands. The law is a unity because it all comes from the one God. So how are we supposed to relate to the law as Christians? You know, this, I thought, I thought the, the gospel meant we didn't have to think about the law anymore. I thought it meant we didn't have to worry about that. I thought it meant that we were forgiven. Yes, it does, and amen. But typically, in, in, the, in the history of the church, an easy way to think about this of how Christians relate to the law is through what's sometimes called the three uses of the law. The first use of the law is that when we hear the law, like love your neighbor as yourself, like, like Sam did for us as we read the summary of the law and said, but guys, if we're honest, do we love our neighbor as ourselves, And do we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength? No. So the first thing that the law does is it convicts us. It reveals what God desires from us, it reveals God's righteousness, and it convicts us that we need forgiveness. And so it sends us to Christ to be forgiven, to ask for forgiveness. The second use of the law is to restrain evil. So like in the society of Israel, here are the laws for the society so that um, more or less evil is restrained, right? So that there's punishments that are warned for uh, stealing or for murder or for this or for that. It restrains evil by threat of punishment. And the third use of the law is to teach those who've been born again how they ought to live. Now, it doesn't mean that our keeping the law is our, is our foundation for our relationship with God. It simply means that because we claim to be in relationship with God, because we have faith in Jesus, and we want to know, Lord, what should I do in this situation? Well, look into the law and see what it says. It teaches us how we should live. And you can see that James is doing this in uh, verse 8, right? He says, 
If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's a command from Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's how you, how should you live? You should love your neighbor. That comes straight out of the law. It's teaching us how we should live. That's the third use of the law. He's also doing that in verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. The way you talk to people, the way you treat people should, be, should conform with the law of God, with what God says in Holy Scripture. So James is doing that for us. He's giving us the third use of the law. He's instructing us how we ought to live. And it's not, it doesn't depend on us. It depends on what Christ has already done for us. In James 1.18, we read that we have been born again by the will of God. In, in James 1.22, we read that God had implanted his word in us. So God is turning us into the type of people who love to obey God, who want to fulfill the law. He gives us the Holy Spirit to encourage us and motivate us to, to be the type of people who do love our neighbor as ourselves. And then James wraps it up. He says, final, final warning and final reminder. The final warning is, look, I've told you that um, treating people with partiality denies the gospel and transgresses the law. There's a day of judgment coming, and if you continue in that path, there is no mercy for those who show no mercy. Right? That's what the Lord Jesus says. God, the, God will be merciful to those who show mercy, and the opposite is true. If, we, if we're not merciful people, we can't expect God to be merciful toward us. On the other hand, the gospel says mercy triumphs over judgment. God's mercy triumphs over judgment. So there's a final warning. There, Jesus is coming, the glorious one. He's coming to judge, and he, the king, has commanded us by his royal law, love your neighbor as yourself. Show no partiality, and the judge is coming. But rest assured, mercy triumphs over judgment. If you are a person who throws yourself on the mercy of God, if you know Jesus, if you've trusted in him, if you've received his grace, you know that, that his mercy has triumphed over the judgment that you deserve, then treat your brothers and sisters with mercy, with kindness, and without, impart without partiality. <clears throat> Remember the mercy and love that's been extended to you and extend that same mercy and love to others. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh, Lord, our Heavenly Father, uh, we see you in the way you extend grace and love and mercy to your enemies, that you send rain on the, on the just and the unjust, that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive in Christ Jesus so that you could seat us in the heavenly places with him and lavish on us the riches of the kindness of your grace. And so, Lord, we know that mercy triumphs over judgment. And so, Lord, fill us with your mercy that we may be people who love our neighbors as ourselves. Root out in us partiality, prejudice, and strengthen us, conform us to the image of Jesus. Help us to see people with your eyes, to allow no divisions in our church, and to hold fast to the gospel. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.